Yeah, right. The fact that Mark Andreessen is kind of, you know, is, is hiring the, the most established Washington fundraiser there is, like, tells you that he's kind of, like, getting wise to the game. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, February 27th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about legendary venture capitalist Mark Andreessen and his reemergence as a political player this election year. What is the bald billionaire doing in Washington to shape opinions about the tech industry? And what exactly are his politics these days? Teddy explains. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben to break down Warren Buffett's latest astounding economic moves and how he grew Berkshire Hathaway to $1 trillion and what he's doing with his $160 billion in cash. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer to talk about the emergent political aspirations of Mark Andreessen, maybe Silicon Valley's most famous venture capitalist who sort of used to care about politics, then backed away for many years. Teddy, welcome to the show. It sounds like he's been doing a bunch of events in D.C. lately, at least according to your reporting, hiring political consultants, starting a pack. Why is that? Uh, you know, the last I really thought about Mark Andreessen was when we were joking in the Puck Slack uh, one time about how he was blocked every journalist on Twitter, every political journalist. I feel like I've been blocked by P. Marka since 2014. Well, Peter, you're talking to, uh, I don't want to put you, make you feel like you're talking to a celebrity. You're talking to a recently unblocked journalist uh, <laughs> as, of, as of three or four months ago. I got the, uh, the golden ticket. So Mark Andreessen is back. And, and he's back, I think, for two reasons. One is that Andreessen Horowitz, his venture capital firm that bears his name, is back in Washington because they can't help it. The firm is, is a huge investor in, in crypto. And they, for the last couple of years, and, and really the last couple of months, um, have been hiring a ton of people in Washington, throwing money around to you know, mm. kind of cultivate their allies. Uh, and that's kind of classic, you know, corporate lobbying, right? They they are out there spending money to protect their portfolio companies and protect the industry they care about. That's reason one. Reason two that Andreessen Horowitz is back is because Mark Andreessen himself is back, and, and that sort of is is sort of one of the themes of my piece is the ways in which what's good for Andreessen Horowitz intersects with what's good for Mark Andreessen personally. So Mark Andreessen back in the 1990s was, you know, sort of this kid out of state school in Illinois, had full head of hair um, and <laughs> was very close with kind of the, you know, tech glitterati that surrounded Al Gore in the 90s. Gore was mm. so popular with so many people out here. And then he kind of went through the last 20 years going through this sort of shedding of all of his liberal ideology. And if you caught Mark Andreessen in 2010, he would be you know, a Romney guy who was, you know, very into kind of the, you know, mm -hmm. the the Paul Ryan budgets and stuff like that. And then flash forward another 10 years to 2020. Uh, and this is a, you know, right wing, culturally obsessed, conservative figure, you know, people who 
a person who you know is, is very close with kind of the the, the fringe, um, you know, not necessarily pro-Trump, but the online influencer community that is very obsessed with issues like wokeism or transgender rights and things like that. And Mark is DMing with these people every day. So it's quite the transformation. And Mark is back himself because, you know, these people are encouraging him to get more and more involved in politics. And he's not really like a mega donor yet, but it, it appears as if he is, you know, as politically energized as he's ever been. So you have the return of Mark Andreessen and you have the return of Andreessen Horowitz happening at the same time. So, you know, despite people who have encountered him over the years uh, in politics calling him brilliant, um, it sounds like based on these activities and what you're describing, he mostly cares about legislators who will protect and support the crypto business Mm -hmm. slash he really just sounds like all of these other rich people, uh, rich men specifically from California who pay attention to politics right now in the context of wokeism and gender and political correctness. Does he deviate from that in any way? I mean, it's just predictable if that's if that's the case. Not that he you know, shouldn't spend his money in whatever way he wants, but you know, you kind of hope Mark Andreessen might have more complex political views than like, you know, watching uh, whatever the vague tweets about. Right. So I, I would say I would say that's that's generally correct. The the thrust of what you're saying is correct. I mean, that is the issue. You know, those are the issue sets that animate him um, substantially. Um, I think there's one other issue that I, that I would draw you to, which which is China. Hmm. You know, Mark Andreessen and and kind of lots of Silicon Valley right wingers. You know, believe that you know the, the United States is losing its technological edge to China, and you know that is an issue that you know is kind of getting them more and more involved. Andreessen Horowitz um, has a kind of investment thesis called American Dynamism, which basically means supporting startups that are in the national interest in the U.S. interest. That pack, Peter, you mentioned, is called Keep Startups in America. Um, mm-hmm. It's Andreessen Horowitz's first political action committee. And the point is, is that's a committee that's going to be trying to make sure that, you know, innovation happens in America, not in China. When Mike Gallagher, who's a, kind of a hawkish Wisconsin congressman now retiring at the age of, you know, what, 37 or whatever he is, he visited uh, Silicon Valley, uh, I think sometime last year, and Andreessen hosted him. And Andreessen did this whole 20-minute speech at this dinner about how tech is a national resource and, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. is conceding its, its leadership role. So that's the other issue that I think is really driving him right now. Um, and that's, you know... Maybe that's an aberration from the stereotype. It, it, it is weightier. But then you look at his Twitter feed and it's just like, you know, <laughs> you know, slightly better, more mature jokes than Elon Musk. But, you know, kind of based on the same, you know, uh, ideology and, and issue set that, you know, the most important thing uh, issue facing the United States is like political correctness and, you know, wokeism and the trampling of free speech. Um, and, you know, Mark is big memer and and it's interesting that like lots of the memes he posts um actually get sent to him by other conservative influencers um so he's he's very much in on the in jokes um maybe maybe too in on the in jokes yeah i mean i look the the saint of sand hill road should be allowed to advocate for uh, u.s tech innovation and uh you know whatever his personal interests are uh we live in a soft money political culture where you can form 501c4s and do whatever you want. It's just the, you know, uh, hearing about yet another tech person who is sort of like waging social media wars about free speech and how you can't say anything in this country anymore. 
while simultaneously spending millions of dollars to say whatever they want because they can is just sort of tedious to me. Teddy, you know, you and I talk a lot about a guy. I love a guy. I love the guy. All these rich people have a guy who help them do mm-hmm. politics, who help them do media buying. Who's helping sure. him navigate Washington politics now that he's dipping his toes back in the political waters? And what names out there, which specific politicians uh, does he like and which ones does he oppose? Yeah, so Mark has kind of uh, slowly been cultivating this this kind of stable of people around the firm that are that are helping that helping him and helping um, them do politics, and, th- and there are some surprising people. One, for instance, is this woman named Heather Larison, who um, is probably very well known or most well known for she kind of was the, the lead fundraiser for Jeb Bush's super PAC that raised mm-hmm. you know a hundred million dollars for Right to Rise back in the day, and she's like very much like a you know, Washington insider establishment Republican fundraiser that I'm sure some listeners to this podcast have probably donated to or uh, gotten solicited from from her before. Um, right to rise is like, about as establishment as it gets. Yeah, right. The fact that Mark Andreessen <laughs> is kind of, you know, is, is hiring the, the most establishment Washington fundraiser there is, like tells you that he's kind of like getting wise to the game. They also have hired SKDK, SKD Knickerbocker, kind of the most, mm-hmm. you know, venerated, you know, uh, blue chip kind of democratic consulting firm to help them navigate Washington. You know, in terms of the the people that Mark is is excited about and, you know, it's basically like kind of the pro crypto uh, office holders in in Congress already, which is interesting to me after my story came out, someone, someone pointed out to me that like, they don't really seem to be trying to cultivate new people or like, you know, convince people who are not quote unquote pro crypto to be more mm-hmm. pro crypto. They mm-hmm. seem to be just funneling more money to the existing, you know, 10 to 15 people who are already on their side. So for instance, next week, I think, or later this week, um, Cynthia Loomis, the Wyoming senator who is very pro crypto, is doing a fundraiser with Andreessen Horowitz in the Bay Area. Um, they did a fundraiser for Tom Emmer about a couple weeks ago that raised like $200,000 at Andreessen Horowitz's offices. Mm. You know, Mark is gotten one scoop in our story is that Mark has once again gotten close to Ro Khanna, the Silicon Valley congressman, oh, yeah. who, who Mark, this is actually an, an interesting anecdote because I think it tells you a lot about Mark's evolution. In 2014, when Ro Khanna, I think, first ran for Congress in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. um, Mark was one of Ro's biggest supporters. He was one of the people, like lots of folks in the tech industry, that mm-hmm. helped Ro get elected. Then, after Ro Khanna supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, they had kind of a big falling out and it was well known privately that Mark and Roe had had this falling out because Mark had basically thought this guy had gone woke, right? And blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And Mark did not donate to Roe Khanna between in 2016, 2018, 2020, 2022. No money was given to Roe Khanna. 2024, Mark has made his first and his wife have given this first max out donation again to Roe Khanna. And I'm told they've kind of made up because Mark is, you know, a fan of Rose kind of work on American dynamism and supporting kind of industrial and manufacturing issues. But like you also get the sense that like Mark wants to be back in in the game. And in fact, Mark didn't make any donations between 2016 and 2023, um, which was very interesting because this is a guy who like was going to Al Gore's parties and was like helping him advise him on his website, you know, 20 years ago. This is a guy who who does like politics. So now he's kind of re-entering the fold, kind of cultivating his allies, and he's back. Um, you know, you talk to Republican fundraisers, they're calling Mark Andreessen in a way they weren't five years ago. So, It's funny you mentioned that race in 2014 in which Ro Khanna challenged Mike Honda. He beat him yeah. later, uh, I think in 20, 2016. 16. Uh, that's, yeah. that's when I first 
became sort of notionally aware of Mark and his involvement in politics. I think I emailed him or DM'd him and you and that's responded. what got you blocked, Peter. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what got me blocked. I've never met the guy. Um, but Ro Khanna's supporters, as you mentioned in that race, was like Marissa Mayer and Cheryl and Eric Schmidt yeah. and Sean Parker. Uh, Mark Andreessen were all backing Roe. And he's also had an interesting political evolution because then Roe kind of became like a Bernie Sanders person and a, you know, like very loud progressive. And it's really, though, kept one foot uh, in the tech world, he cares a lot about manufacturing and the other foot in sort of more Bernie style progressive politics. Uh, he he too has evolved over the years, but it's very interesting that Mark is uh, back in his good graces, supposedly. Um, Teddy, one more thing before you go. I just want to mention for listeners, I have a piece up right now about another out, quixotic outsider, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running for president. I spent the weekend down at the California Libertarian Convention uh, in Orange County, hmm. where RFK Jr. is sort of flirting with becoming the Libertarian nominee because he needs to get on ballots in November. And if he became the Libertarian nominee, that would put him on 36 ballots, if not more. Um, but, Teddy, uh, you might not be surprised to learn that the Libertarians, despite liking him on some issues, did not like him on others. And it seems quite unlikely he will become the Libertarian nominee. But I have a lot of color from RFK's adventures in Ron Paul world uh, up on up on hmm. puck. It came out in the best and the brightest yesterday. So you check that out. Listeners, check that out. I as will. Well. And also check out Teddy's piece on Mark Andreessen tiptoeing back into politics. Thank you, buddy. You bet. When we come back, Bill Cohen is here to talk about Warren Buffett. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Ben. Great to be here as always. Nice to see you again after your private event and interview last week with David Solomon from Goldman Sachs. That conversation was off the record, but my favorite piece of feedback was from your wife's sister who reported that <laughs> having an event on the 100th floor was too high. She said that she could feel the floor swaying. So uh, maybe we do the 99th floor next time. Yeah, she's got a, a slight fear of heights, so I think you you know we plugged into that uh, fear, unfortunately. <laughs> but it was you know hundred flights. It was almost surreal. It was so high uh, up. Uh, what we were looking at out the windows didn't look real, but it was great event. Good, good food. It, good it, was, it was an incredible, uh, incredible event. It was like a scene out of Succession, and uh, you yeah. were fantastic and in a top yeah, form. Thank you. Well, listen, I, I wanted to have you on today because. Berkshire Hathaway has been in the news for a bunch of reasons over the last week. And I know this is one of your favorite companies. We had an earnings report that just blasted the stock into the stratosphere. It's close to a trillion dollar market valuation, um, which would make Berkshire the the first non-tech American company to achieve that milestone. And uh, also the fact that they made $97 billion in profit last year. Oh my God. And they have $160 billion cash on hand. Bill, you have been a shareholder forever. What, what kind of advice would you give Warren Buffett, uh, not that he needs the advice, uh, yeah. about what to do with all that money? I mean, he's already in Apple and insurance, banking, oil, Coca-Cola. Uh, what's left for this guy to do? Well, and he and he is saying uh, in his new letter that uh, he, he's uh, unlikely to uh, outperform anymore, that he's 
He suffers from being too big uh, at this point, uh, having too much cash uh, and real no real good place to put it, at least, you know, without a market disruption. You know, he's very good at being uh, a fortress. Again, he's sort of our, like our version of J.P. Morgan was, uh, you know, m- more than 100 years ago. You know, when, when the shit hits the fan, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, able to step in, you know, as he did in 2008 with uh, Goldman Sachs, with Bank of America, with GE, uh, and try to restore confidence, you know, because, of course, uh, financial services is just a confidence game. And, you know, once confidence is lost in a financial services company, uh, you might as well just flush it down the tube. So his ability to sort of step in and buy his very expensive preferreds does help uh, restore confidence to the markets. Uh, so in those circumstances, and again, we really haven't had, you know, we had a kind of a minor hiccup a year ago with some of the regional bank stocks, but basically in banks, uh, we really haven't had a you know a full-blown financial crisis uh, for you know 16 years now, and um, which probably means we're overdue, and it also means that he can't really uh, do what he does best uh, in a market where you know stocks are hitting all-time highs and uh, companies' valuations are are pretty pretty high. So I, I sense he's. Uh, quite happy with where he is, with all that cash, uh, with all that uh, uh, you know net income, which of course, as he explains, came as a result of um, capital gains or mark-to-market capital gains. In his letter, he, he said he preferred prefers to sort of focus on uh, operating income ex- as opposed to. Uh, net income from that includes one-time gains, but you know he's uh, definitely hitting on all c- cylinders. His stock is pretty much at an all-time high. It's good to be a, a Warren Buffett uh, shareholder, and it's good to have invested uh, in 1990 when I did. Yeah, c- good for you, Bill. Uh, may we all be so lucky in our uh, investment journeys. Yeah, it's interesting this point you made about how the more successful you are and, and the bigger you are, actually the more difficult it is to replicate that success. I suppose when you're worth a trillion dollars, if you invest a million in some company and it goes to 10 billion, that's an incredible success for a smaller investor. But at Berkshire Hathaway, you know that, that barely makes a ripple. I mean, you need to replicate that kind of success a hundred times to really see the, the value of the company go up a lot. So it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, probably the biggest opportunity for a guy like Warren is actually to wait for an economic downturn. That he needs a financial calamity to go in and rescue companies to see those kinds of returns again, you know, probably in his lifetime. Um, and this is a guy who's 93 years old. Yeah, I think I think that is sort of where he's at at the moment. Of course, he's, you know, made a killing in, you know, in Apple, uh, which I think is some very large percentage of the whole portfolio now uh, because of course you know Apple has just been an incredible uh outperformer you know and again he was not somebody who claimed to be interested in tech or understood tech but he does understand um moats around companies he he does understand you know um excellence in manufacturing and in management and a very well-run company, which obviously, you know, Apple is under Tim Cook and has been for a while. 
but he also uh, has invested in uh, you know American Express and Coca Cola uh, for a very long time, as he explains. Uh, you know, one one of the things that um, you know I found very interesting about uh, uh, there were two things uh, which I found very very interesting. One uh, in sort of his latest earnings report and his latest letter to shareholders is. Number one, uh, no mention of Paramount Global Ben, um, which you know he he did uh, in the in the first quarter of 2022 by like 93 million shares, cost something like two and a half billion dollars. Again, for Warren Buffett, that's a big yawn. Um, it's down two thirds in the last quarter of last year. He sold a third of his stock. Very unusual for uh, an investor to sell his or her stock in the middle of what is supposed to be a sale process, let alone for Warren Buffett to do it. So I thought that was uh, very interesting and no mention of it at all, not only in his letter, but in the whole 10K, you know, that accompanies uh, the letter, there was no mention of Paramount Global. So my sense is he's really quite fed up with that investment and probably never wanted to make it in the first place. Yeah, that's a point you've made before that you um, you suspect that Warren wasn't really involved in that decision. One of his underlings probably got him into Paramount, and he's just happy to have this embarrassment uh, in the rearview mirror. Or, you know, in the process of being in the rearview mirror, yeah. I mean, again, very unusual for somebody, a big investor, and he was the largest economic investor uh, in uh, Paramount Global to, to, to sell that down, that stake in the middle of a sale process. Very unusual. The other thing that he wrote, uh, one sentence which really uh, warmed my heart was uh, he said that the the word EBITDA is banned uh, at Berkshire <laughs> Hathaway, not not even adjusted EBITDA uh, Ben, which you know how much I hate that, but EBITDA itself. Um, so uh, he prefers to look uh, at uh, the company's earnings, uh, you know, after. Uh, interest expense after depreciation and amortization after taxes. So, you know, I re- I don't think there's any other company uh, saying that uh, so explicitly. Uh, that really, I thought, was refreshing, and uh, other companies should uh, learn from that and follow suit. Um, you know, especially the ones that are doing the adjusted uh, EBITDA uh, ad nauseum. Uh, you know, like say. Warner Brothers Discovery, or um, I know this has been your your others. hobby horse for many years. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have my views ratified by no less than Warren Buffett himself. Of course, it's a good thing that Warren is not a, an investor in Puck. Um, I think he would uh, not appreciate the frequency with which EBITDA gets a shout out from uh, John Kelly on this very podcast. Bill, before I let you go, I, I'm curious about sort of what is next for. Berkshire and for Buffett himself. I mean, he, he's 93. His co-chair, Charlie Munger, died a few months ago at age 99. Buffett doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. I don't know how much faith he has in the succession process or how interested he is in it. But, um, you know, when he steps down, does this become a different company? You and I were just talking about how Buffett's really focused on slow and steady growth right now. He's not taking big risks because he thinks the company's kind of too big to really be performance-driven. They've got to be opportunistic. But, you know, some younger guy who's, you know, a 60-year-old, a 70-year-old comes in and, and runs this company after him. Uh, are they going to be tempted to take some bigger risks to make their presence felt when they uh, take over the CEO chair? 
Uh, I mean, you know, if, if I could uh, foretell the future, you know, with any kind of accuracy, you know, I might be on an island somewhere in the South Pacific, but... Uh, well, you did invest in Berkshire in the 90s, Bill, so don't uh, sell yourself short. Right. But, you know, that's when Warren Buffett was, you know, whatever, in, in his 60s. So, you know, I look, I think he believes he has uh, his succession process arranged for, wrapped up. Uh, he reiterated how confident he is in uh, Greg Abel, who's going to take over as the CEO, and then there'll be two other guys as chief investment officers. Um I suspect they are literally uh, cut from the same mold as Warren Buffett, and they're going to do everything they can to replicate uh, what he's done. I don't expect any sudden moves out of those guys, uh, nothing that would sort of tarnish uh, the legacy of uh, of Warren Buffett. And by the way, Ben, why why would you? I mean, there's <laughs> it's almost uh, hard hard to hard to believe. He, you know, he includes his, in this. Uh, current uh, a- annual uh, report, annual letter, uh, a chart of uh, how uh, the, the, the stock has performed uh, since 1964 when he first uh, bought the company. Um, and not only uh, one uh, measure is that he's uh, has a compounded annual return of 20% a year, which is double the S&P 500 during the same period. So that's fairly astounding. And then uh, another measure is just the absolute uh, return on the stock uh, since uh, he uh, took over the company in 1964, between 1964 and, 19, and, and 2023, uh, a mere 4.4 4 million percent uh uh, ben, so Jesus. why would no. anybody do anything any different than what he has done? If you if you possibly can, I mean, he's extremely disciplined. He's patient. He's a long term investor. He invests pretty much in what he knows. He doesn't fool around. Um, he doesn't uh, uh, seem to get swept up in the latest fads. So does he miss uh, Nvidia? Does he miss Tesla? Uh, or maybe even Amazon. Uh, yes, he probably does miss those things, but, you know, it's hard to argue with 4.4 million percent. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Bill, thanks as always for coming on. Great to see you. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.